Good Adventures, everybody. I'm Melissa Bonsack, and welcome to episode 103 of Books Cubed. Today, I am joined by author Elizabeth Engelman, and we are chatting about her book, The Way of the Saints, which is excellent. It was recommended to me by my uh, co-author, Lisa uh, Mahoney, and I am so happy that it was. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, thank you, Melissa. I'm really glad to be here. I appreciate it. Oh, I, I was so excited to get your book and, and read it. And uh, it is, it's just, it's so beautifully written. And it's just Thank been, you. excuse me, it's just been such a joy to read it. I've just been having the best time. I'm not completely finished uh, because I'm a really slow reader and I really wanted to savor it. I didn't want to skim it. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, I'm going to read your bio real quick for everybody. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Engelman was awarded the 2019. Is it Nielsen? Nielsen. Literary Prize from Southeast Missouri State University Press and the 2017 Emerging Writer Award from the Key West Literary Seminar. Her essays have been published in the New York Times and Endeavor Magazine, a publication of the American Society for Deaf Children. She received her MFA from the University of Tampa, where she was honored with an outstanding graduate award. She holds an MA in poetry from Lancaster University. And is this your first novel? Yes. Uh, okay. And give everybody just a brief description of what it's about. And I'm, I'm going to quickly, I'm, I'm sorry to do this to anybody on video, but I'm going to quickly go to speaker because no one wants to look at me on screen all the time. So <laughs> just give them a brief description of what it is about. Yeah. So um, this is the book. It's uh, The Way of the Saints. And um, it's based in, uh, on my own personal experiences as the daughter of a Santeria priestess. Um, it's very much based on my family's experience growing up in New York. Um, it tells the story of the Puerto Rican diaspora in the 1950s um, and um, the story of a woman who was desperate to have a child and was experiencing a lot of miscarriages. And so she went to um, a Santero to help her have the baby um, and was told that she was cursed and which launched her into this uh, journey into um, having a baby and being a part of Santeria, um, the practice and uh, a really exploration of power and control as she, she grows in, in this practice. Um, but overall, it's it's telling a story of uh, dominating regimes in terms of the history of Puerto Rico, um, hungry and controlling spirits um, in relation to uh, the character who is is trying to have a child, and then the story of that child and uh, her relationship with her mother and and having a very dominating mother. So there's um, three main characters in the story. Paula, Isabel, and Esther, and each is in a different time period. They're all Puerto Rican women. And um, one is set in Puerto Rico um, during their independence movement in the 1930s. Um, One is set in New York in the 1950s and 70s growing up in the Lower East Side. And then the other is set in uh, the 1980s in New York and um, a little island, island called City Island, which is on the Long Island Sound and um, in Westchester, kind of growing up more affluent um, in suburbia um, and and just these three women's journeys toward um, self-actualization and self-determination. And I really liked how you went back and forth. Mm -hmm. 
and and we jumped around in time and we'd learn a little bit about somebody and then we'd jump forward and and at first it was it was like well what's going on here then as i was reading i realized i was really learning so much more about the characters i think because we jumped to different important parts in their lives to really get an understanding of why they were behaving the way that they were but yeah. before you read just really quickly explain what center i'm going to say it wrong centeria uh, is yeah. for anyone who doesn't know yeah um santeria is um is a diaspora practice that came out of west africa and so um the history is that when um west african uh, slaves were brought over by colonists the spanish colonists um they were brought to Cuba, Puerto Rico, Santo Domingo, and other colonies. Um, and they practice um, a, a faith, a Western African faith, a more spiritualism where um, the, everything was animated. All of creation is animated with life. And, um, and that practice was oppressed by the Spanish colonists. They were not allowed to, to practice their faith. And so they hid it. And um, Santeria is a synchronized uh, religion in the sense that they hid their practice and practice under the guise of Catholicism. So for each one of their uh, saints and their guides, they paired that with a Catholic saint and um, would practice what would look like on the surface to be Catholicism, but underneath was actually their Western spirituality. And so um, it's a synchronistic uh, religion came, that came out of that di diaspora and it's still practiced today. And it's um, very widely practiced uh, in Spanish-speaking countries. Um, wherever, wherever West African slaves were brought into, um, whether it was a Spanish colony and even a French colony, um, you would see this type of practice. But in the French colonies, we call it voodoo. In the Spanish colonies, we call it santeria. They are a little different, but, but their roots are similar. And so um, my mom became involved in Santeria in order to have a baby. I was that baby. And um, this is the story of her, her journey and my journey um, alongside her as she practiced that. Okay, we'll talk about that more, but go ahead and read an excerpt for everybody. Sure. So um, this is from the chapter, uh, one of the early chapters, it's called Dedication. And it's the um, initial story of Isabel as she goes to seek help. Um, she's had a number of miscarriages and she's going to seek help from a Santero. It's set in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in 1974. The air smelled of piss and winos. Isabel stood in the dimly lit hall of Ernesto's building and held her breath. Overhead, a dying light flickered. Her mother, who owned only one book, the Bible, and devoted an hour to reading from it each morning, would be furious to discover Isabel pocketing Ernesto's address and now standing at his metal door. In the old neighborhood, he was known as El Diablo. From a neighboring apartment, she heard sharp voices, then the racket of a baby crying, a radio blasting rhythmic salsa. She needed to get out of the hall. Halls weren't safe. She pounded on Ernesto's door with her fists. A shadow slid across the peephole and the deadbolt clicked. With the brass chain still latched, the door opened two inches and Isabel saw one gray eye. Ernesto, it's Isabel. We spoke on the phone. Without answering, the face withdrew and the door slammed shut. She heard the chain fall loose before it opened again. Ernesto stood in the doorway, haggard, older than she'd remembered. One eye was clouded with a cataract 
reminding her of Moonstone. Isabel, all grown, he waved her into the apartment. Blanca, he shouted into the next room, look who's here, little Isabel from the old building. As they walked into the living room, Isabel smelled rubbing alcohol, tobacco, and clove. The smell bled out from the kitchen and it surprised her that she hadn't noticed it from the hall. Papers and books were stacked in sloppy piles on the floor. Food stained plates and glasses littered the coffee table. Cowrie shells, white candles, frosted jars, seed bead necklaces, a bottle of rum and an ashtray with the bud of a cigar all lay on the larger wooden table near the kitchen. Then Isabel noticed Ernesto's wife, Blanca, sitting upright on the couch, completely asleep with a, pail, a pile of chicken legs on her lap. Never mind that, Ernesto said with a nod at his wife. Come, we'll work in the bathroom. She hadn't known what to expect, but being confined with Ernesto in the bathroom was not what she'd imagined. Her older brother Esau rarely spoke of Vietnam, but once he'd sent a letter where he described a night on ambush patrol, how he hid in the jungle waiting for the enemy when a tiger stalked right by him, looking at him from the corner of its eyes. Tigers went after the guys who fell asleep, attacking at least one sleeping soldier a month. You don't turn your back on a tiger, he wrote. Isabel followed Ernesto through the apartment. She was rigid, on alert. The farther she walked down the musty hall, the more she felt her gut twisting. She regretted coming already, but she'd given up on her last doctor. She needed help, and turning to Ernesto was a risk she was willing to take. She'd do whatever he said. The morning paper reported the chilliest Memorial Day in years, but it was warm in the apartment. Still, she didn't take off her thin coat. Ernesto stepped aside in the narrow hall and gestured for her to enter the bathroom. She squeezed by him, not wanting to touch his chest. The room with its wall-to-wall -wall peach tile was no wider than a bath mat. It looked recently cleaned and smelled of pine. She stood in the cramped space between the toilet and the bathtub, feeling idiotic, fragile. She shivered and struggled to breathe. It was too stuffy, too warm, sour. You know, she stammered, I think I've made a mistake. It's fine, todo esta bien, mija. His soothing paternal tone rankled her further. He still possessed the kind of beast presence she remembered from her girlhood. I can help you, he said. I want this baby, she said, laying a hand on her flat stomach. It's just, she didn't have the words to express her dread, the hopeless look on her doctor's face. They said I couldn't, I mean, I've tried, but she looked down at her feet. Nothing's impossible, Ernesto said. He reached out a palm towards her and squeezed her shoulder. Startled by his touch, she took a step back. I won't hurt you. He stepped closer and she noticed his long fingernails and the silver serpentine ring around his index finger. Do you mind? He cleared his throat and helped her slip her arms out of her jacket. She studied a yellow crack in the ceiling, anything to avoid direct eye contact. Getting pregnant isn't the problem, she said to the crumbling drywall. I lost the others. Her face flushed. I understand, he said. He leaned over the white porcelain tub and began filling a shallow plastic basin with warm water. Over the sound of the running water, he said, you're not the first to come here from the old building. What's it been, 12 years? He laid the basin at her feet. 14, she said. Take off your shoes. He gestured to the basin with his chin, get in.
I'll stop there. That's a good place to stop. I, mm -hmm. I, these women were such strong women, yeah. but it, but placed in circumstances they had no control over. Yeah. And that's what really struck me was all three of the women mm -hmm. had really no control over their own lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you said that this is autobiographical. Mm -hmm. Auto, I can speak. I really yeah. can. Autobiographical in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is fiction. I did fictionalize uh, a lot of the story, but it is inspired on my own uh, family. And so um, my mom did begin her motherhood this way, you know, seeking help, um, guidance to have a child after several miscarriages and, uh, and then started a spiritual journey um, once she got pregnant and, and, um, and she really had a lot of traumas. And so um, her, her spiritual journey reflected that. And um, it was rooted in a lot of fear. Um, you know, there was also love, um, but there was a lot that she did to, um, to protect and control um, coming from, a, you know, a childhood that had been, um, had a lot of trauma in it. And so, so um, the child's character, which is, um, which is inspired by my childhood, uh, really struggled um, by this dominating, controlling mother who used her power as she grew in this practice, it's, it, you know, and um, grew in her power and grew in her own strength. Uh, she used it to control and dominate others in her life, her husband and her child. And so I am telling a story about, about characters who, um, have to overcome that kind of oppressive dominating spirit, whether it comes from a parent, from um, a religious institution or from a government and how they can find their own voice, their own um, authentic self and really overcome that kind of oppression. That, that theme of oppression and overcoming and finding your own self really mm -hmm. just is all throughout the whole book which is just a neat way to tie everything together. And you say it, you kind of borrow from real life. And as writers, we all do. Yeah. But there's that fine line where you'd only where you take where you where, where you do sometimes write that first draft and you realize that you've eh, maybe moved a little too close. Did you find yourself having to cut things that you thought were just a little too on the nose? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, this this book originally was about 100 pages longer. So um, right now it sits at about 250 pages. Um, originally, it was 350. And uh, I did cut a lot out in terms of, um, you know, my, the character that is based on my mom, um, she experienced a lot of sexual abuse. Um, and, and I was really trying to navigate how to tell that story. Um, without exploiting it and exploiting her suffering, um, you know, without going um, to places that were too dark for the reader. And so um, some of that uh, came out of the book. Um, some of the other things that I cut were um, stories that are, that are based on characters that are still, or people that are still alive. Um, I have two half siblings. Um, originally, some of their story was in, in the book and, and eventually I added them completely out. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I really wanted to um, honor my ancestors, you know, many of them are gone, many have passed away. And, and I was really trying to walk that line of telling their stories, um, but not exploiting their stories and, and really wanting to um, 
be empathetic about the journey that they had gone on, why they made their choices. They may not have always made the best choices, but what motivated those choices? What were the circumstances around those choices? I really tried to get inside that space. And then anything that slowed the narrative down, um, I had to cut, you know, so just to keep that pace going. I was chatting with a friend yesterday for lunch and we were talking about success because, you know, authors always do. You kind of, and everybody has a different definition. And for Mm -hmm. my friend, it was that she wanted to finish her latest book, which I hope she's doing because I've read some excerpts and it's so good. So what, what does success mean for you? I mean, this is your first book being published and it's being published by a university press. Yes. um, Southeast university, Southeast state university press. So what, what, what will success, and this is a pre-order everybody, and I'm going to run the show, uh, but then I'm going to rerun it again when it comes out in September, right? So if you're hearing this in September, it'll already be out, uh, but I'll adjust the show notes. And, uh, but so what, what would success look like for you for this book? Um, you know, I, I did a lot of soul searching about that. Um, you know, when you go online, you, you know, as a, as a new novelist, um, and this is like my debut book, you need Google, uh, what do you do now? Like I, I had, uh, just dreamed for so long just to finish the book. That was, you know, the number one goal. And then to have it published, um, I wanted it published, um, through a reputable press. And, and so I just felt so fortunate to get that far. Um, and so, um, Southeast uh, Missouri State University Press took that, that uh, leap with me. And so um, I had never really imagined what came next. And so then when I started, you know, realizing what am I supposed to do? Um, At this point, there's a lot of messaging out there about, you know, how to market your book and, um, you know, is it a New York Times bestseller? You wanting to sell out on, you know, be a bestseller on Amazon, um, do book tours, you know, what does it look like? And, and, for, for me, it, I, I ha- kind of had a smaller vision. Um, I really love connecting with other people. I love that the book has allowed me to find my tribe, my writer community. Um, if it can foster that continuation where I get to share my work and it resonates with someone else and we can talk about it. Um, if, if I have opportunities like that, to me, that success. Um, if I have an opportunity to um, maybe have it interpreted in Spanish, I would really love that. That's like my my ultimate goal for for the novel, um, because it is set in Puerto Rico and the three main characters are Puerto Rican women. Um, it, I would really love it to reach uh, a Puerto Rican audience in Puerto Rico. So um, that would necessitate that it would be in Spanish, and so that is my ultimate goal for it. But but I'm really enjoying the baby steps. I'm enjoying all of this journey, um, meeting people, just the gift of their time that they sat down and read what I, what I wrote, uh, that's success. Like I'm just thrilled. So, so um, I feel like I'm living it already. Even It's not even come out really into the world and, and it's already given me so much. Um, I'm not gonna chase after these uh, goals, I guess that I'm, you know, that these, uh, you know, kind of like pie in the sky, not that 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 is a bad thing. Um, I just feel so fulfilled already. And so I really wanted to savor the moments that I'm being given now um, 
with the book and just allowing it to bring me to the right people and connect me to my tribe and give me opportunities to 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 learn and grow and if it does all that that's success that's a great answer mm -hmm. i like the connection the connecting with the readers and as mm -hmm. writers that's really, and I know some people will say, you know, I want to be bestseller and I want to make millions of dollars and blah, blah, blah. But I think as writers, just like you said, the main thing we want to do is connect with other people or yeah. else why else will we write our stories down and put yeah. them out in the world? Right. And we, and we tend to be, you know, uh, like, uh, like homebodies and, and, you know, a bit introverted. And, you know, I, I really resonate with that hermit. I, I, you know, I can spend time on my own all the time. Um, and yet at the same time, I really value people who uh, are like-minded and just, you know, who care about others, who care about words, who see how things connect in this world, who get excited about it. Um, and so I want to share those moments and then go back in my cave. And so I love this little balance. And, and the book is my bridge. It allows me to to, to kind of go out in the world and speak my truth and learn and then go back, you know? Yes. Oh yeah. I know exactly mm -hmm. what you mean. Yeah. I'm a homebody too. <laughs> Are you working on anything new right now? Yeah. Um, I'm working on, I, well, first of all, this book was a little heavy. This was my childhood. My childhood was hard and it was, it was dark. And so I had to get this one out of my system. Like everything inside me, every cell was, you know, my dream life. Like everything was saying, you have to write this book. And so when I finally had this written, I felt delivered from my childhood. And so now I'm just really embracing all the fun of writing again. Um, it doesn't, feel so heavy. Um, it feels like I can play. And so um, what I'm working on right now is a young adult, um, like a maybe a middle grade um, fiction uh, based in St. Augustine. That's where I live now, St. Augustine, Florida. And I have a profoundly deaf son. And so my main characters are um, deaf middle schoolers at Florida School for the Deaf and the Blind. And St. Augustine is a very magical, it's a, you know, ancient city. Uh, it was the first city to be um, colonized, the first city to be discovered and, you know, in, in this world and so in the, in the new world in, in the United States. And so, so it has this lore of ghosts and mystery. Um, and so I'm really playing on that, you know, a city that is full of ghosts. And so I'm trying to write something that's a little bit of like a Da Vinci code um, for middle grade students and where they go throughout the city and they're putting all these clues together and solving um, a mystery. There's so many amazing things, um, stories that come out of St. Augustine. And I really love thinking about voice and silence and what we learn when we're quiet and um, the invisible voices, the languages that are not English that are always speaking. Um, and so some of that comes into my work, um, and I've thought about that a lot since I've, you know, raised a deaf son who doesn't have a clear voice in English. He uses sign language we sign at home. And so um, thinking about how, how we communicate without using our words is something I really love to explore. Some of the kids in your, in your book will be deaf or have hearing issues? Yeah, yeah. So my main characters will be deaf. And, um, and I, I don't know if you recently saw it, but uh, The Quiet Place 2 um, was just terrific. And they just do such a good job. I mean, I was, I was thrilled sitting with my teenage son watching this, you know, 
teenage Jeff, uh, you know, young lady, just Terminator crawling, saving the world, you know, um, we've never seen that. We've never seen deaf characters be the heroes, being brave, being the champion. And um, I, wanna, I want more characters like that. So um, that, some of that was, you know, inspirational to me of, you know, seeing, seeing that story unfold, but I love it. You know, my son has cochlear implants too. Oh, um, he? He, yeah, but he was born deaf. And we didn't know he was deaf until he was two years old. Um, and so by that time he was already, he had no language. Um, and then by three years old, when the implants were turned on, um, you know, he's three, he can, he's completely mobile, running all around, but has no language. He had no foundational language because we were told by audiologists um, not to sign to him. And, um, and that, was, that was really unfortunate. And so to this day, yeah. I tell every, parents that I meet, give your kids all the tools. They need sign language. And if you choose to um, use the tools of cochlear implants, it's great. It's a great technology. It is a great resource, but it is just a tool. And just like our phones break and they're, you know, sometimes not functioning, it's the same thing with those implants. They're not a hundred percent. They're not a fix all or cure all by any means. And and so for, for my son who had no language and then sound was turned on, um, he was just, he, he, he just didn't like it. It was, it, I mean, he, he just um, rejected it in a lot of ways, pulled them off all the time, lots of tantruming. Um, eventually, you know, when, as he got older um, and like his adolescence, he just decided it's not for him and he took them off and he doesn't wear them. And so, um, just like we were talking about success and, and having to come to terms with it, you know, make it very personalized. Um, for me as a mom, I had to redefine what success was in raising a deaf child and to understand that success isn't his clear English voice. Success is a rich language that he can communicate with. And so when we dived into sign language and he became fluent and we became fluent in sign language, his life blossomed. I mean, he became just like the greatest, happiest, well-adjusted kid. And, um, and he's just your typical teen. I don't mean he's not perfect, but he's just your, you know, he's just a, he's just a normal kid. Um, and he uses another language to communicate. And that's, that's the only difference. Sign language is one of those things that, um, you know, it's a, it's a three-dimensional language. So even when you're learning it, on a screen, it's not the same, you know? Um, so, you know, when we, when we were on this journey, there were not, you know, free sign language classes online. We didn't have access. So I had to um, re-enroll in college and take all the signing interpreting classes that I could to learn the language to communicate with my son. And you speak three then, so. No, no, so I'm not fluent in Spanish. And so oh, that's not. kind of part, no, and that's part of my journey. Um, my mom, um, when she when she was young in the 50s 60s and lower east side of of new york um that was during the time of like this, this great my migration from from puerto rico and um the new york school systems were not prepared for all of these students who were were um were fluent in spanish and did not know english and so her early childhood experiences as a Spanish speaker in the school system were really uh, challenging. And so she was placed in special ed classes. Um, she, she just had a really terrible early childhood experience um, because of the, her, her um, lack of English. And so 
when I was young, she didn't allow my family to speak Spanish to me. So my grandmother, um, the, the character Paula is based on my grandmother and my grandmother only knew Spanish and was um, instrumental in raising me, but would speak to me in broken English instead of speaking to me in Spanish. And, uh, and that was just my mom's misunderstanding at the time um, how much children can learn multiple languages at the same time and how enriching that is. Um, so I grew up always, you know, raised by this Puerto Rican family, but I was the only one who didn't speak Spanish. So I always felt on the outside. I always felt like an outsider. Um, and um, part of writing this story was sort of rediscovering my roots, making amends with, with some of that history. Um, as I was telling my grandmother's story and trying to get into her character and into her time, I started um, uncovering all of this history about Puerto Rico's independence movement and you know the 19, um, the, the 1930s and then it, it, into the 1950s, um, this challenge uh, that Puerto Ricans were having to self-actualize under oppressive government. And, um, and as I was learning about the Ponce massacre and different leaders um, like uh, Albizo Campos, I had never heard of these stories before. And I became fascinated with this history. And I, I thought, why, are, why didn't anyone tell me? Um, and so as I was writing, I really wanted to tell these stories also. And so I took my, my grandmother and my grandfather, I took these characters and I put them in the middle of that revolution. I put them in the middle of that independence movement um, to tell these stories. I felt like it was a really good parallel of, of telling a story of self-determination. One of the first <laughs> things I did as I'm reading and I got to that point and I thought, oh, I know nothing about that. So paused, ran to Google, uh, read a bunch, watched videos and things and, and, and I learned something. So I was really excited about that. I feel like now with the internet and the stories being shared, these stories are just now being told. Um, I did go to school in Puerto Rico for middle school, my seventh and eighth grade year, um, but I was put in an English school. So again, even though I was there, I wasn't challenged to speak Spanish, but, but in that, even in the school system, um, when we were learning history, we didn't learn this history. And so um, these stories are just, newly being told um, an, an author um, Nelson Dennis he, he did a really terrific job in um, a nonfiction book called the war against Puerto Ricans and um, I learned a ton from reading his work and was really inspired to put some of those stories in my fiction you know taking the history and and putting it into the story of my grandparents uh, and I'm glad you did because now it's there for people to discover and read and make sure that these stories are not forgotten yeah yeah at all mm -hmm. at all and so so I can understand why your next book you'd want to be lighthearted because <laughs> the book it, it's gets intense at times it's a great story though so uh people really need you need, need to read it and I'll have links in the show notes uh, for you to find the book and it's on pre-order right now mm -hmm. but it comes out in September right Yes. Yeah. So um, September 1st, it'll, it should be out and um, any, you know, little bookstore, somebody could walk in and just pre-order it mm -hmm. or online too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, I want to fit, I want a physical copy. So I'd be going into mm -hmm. my local bookstore. We have a brand new one and I'm so excited about it. Uh, and I'm going to go in there uh, and ask them and maybe I can get them to do it as a, um, the book club, they have a book club. So maybe oh, they'll do it as a book club feature. Thank so you. 
Yeah, I'll mm-hmm. have to ask her about that since it's so good. I think a lot of people really need to read it. So, Thank and, and uh, do you have, um, is there a website or I'm looking to see if I have notes about it? I do. do. Um, I, I do. Uh, Lizzie Engelman.com. Uh, Lizzie L-I-Z-Z-Y. And then Engelman is E-N-G-E-L-M-A-N.com. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. And I spelled Lizzie wrong when I wrote to her the last time. That's I have a friend okay. named Lizzie and it's L-I-Z-Z-I-E. So <laughs> yeah, no problem. I should have checked. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. We will have links in the show notes where you can find Elizabeth's book. And the title is, I'm going to say it one more time, and I'm looking for my notes. What is the title one more time? The Way of the Saints. The Way of the Saints. If you're watching on video, the cover is gorgeous. Oh, yeah. This is Crystal uh, Quiles. She's a Puerto Rican artist in New York, um, and she just did such a beautiful job. I love her work. Yeah, it's, it's a painting on the front cover, and it's just beautiful. And if you have any comments on today's show, you can drop down to the show notes and you'll find the word comment and click on that. It will take you over to the YouTube page and you can leave us a comment. And that is it. Thank you so much for coming on, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you. I, I just enjoyed myself so much. I really appreciate you having me here. I, I recommend this book so highly and you can get it in uh, pre-order now. Or like I said, I will rerun this again in September mm-hmm. and then you can order it then. But uh, in the meantime, Uh, I will see you next week and go read a good book. Mm